and welcome to the ID Talk podcast. I am your host, Peter Counter, Editor-in-Chief at Fine Biometrics and Mobile ID World. I'm pleased to bring you this latest episode. September is Government Biometrics Month at Fine Biometrics, in which our featured articles and news coverages focusing on law enforcement, border control, refugee identity, civil ID, and more. And that's why this episode of ID Talk is all about government applications of biometrics. My guest today is Benji Hutchinson, Vice President of Federal Operations for the Advanced Recognition Systems Division of NEC Corporation of America. To start off, we discuss the many vertical markets we include under the umbrella of government biometrics before delving deep into the world of border control, specifically the U.S. biometric entry and exit mandate that NEC is heavily involved with. That topic, of course, segues very well into the ongoing privacy debate around the use of facial recognition by border control and law enforcement. And Benji and I talk about misconceptions around face biometrics, the conflation of identification and authentication, and NEC's stance on the state of facial recognition technology. We finish by discussing the status of large American databases, IDENT and HEART, and what's next for NEC Corporation of America. So now, without any further ado, here is my conversation with NEC Corporation of America's Benji Hutchinson. I'm joined by Benji Hutchinson, Vice President of Federal Operations, Advanced Recognition Systems Division of NEC Corporation of America. Benji, thanks for joining me today on the ID Talk podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So we're speaking today under the pretense of Government Biometrics Month. So let's start with some talk of the larger marketplace. The idea of government biometrics is an umbrella that covers a wide range of vertical markets from law enforcement to public safety to border control. And uh, there's a a whole bunch of others that keep getting uh, added into that. What government verticals is NEC currently most active in? Mainly, we are in the public safety area when it comes to anything that has to do with government. But uh, specifically for the federal government, the departments that we primarily focus on are Department of Homeland Security, the Department of State, uh, the Intelligence Community, and the Department of Defense. We also have a strong practice at the state and local level, state, local, and tribal level when it comes to public safety, police organizations, and so forth. But at the federal level, it has more to do with those national security, homeland defense, homeland security, and intelligence entities. With those uh, that multiple-tier Uh, level. How do you approach things like interoperability when it comes to uh, communicating between those spaces? You know, we work really closely with the government customers. Um, They have a number of standards in place, whether it's data standards or data sharing practices. And typically what happens is those are flow down requirements that we have to implement with our systems. One of the most internationally recognized would be the NIST standards for data and EBTS, the Electronic Biometric Transmission Specifications. Those are just one of of several standards out there that are required for interoperability, at least of biometric data, across the U.S. federal government and with state and local governments, but also with international partners as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's really interesting how much uh, connectivity has really made that interoperability question so so integral, even on that international level. You know, identity technology at large is really tied to connectivity and mobility. And uh, I guess especially coming from a 
public safety perspective, are there emerging government biometrics use cases you're seeing coming out of the growing mobile, 5G, and Internet of Things markets? We are. We're seeing more and more biometric applications that are uh, not tethered to either uh, a military base or uh, the headquarters element or a police station. You're seeing more and more of these types of applications being taken out to the edge, right? So biometrics is going out into the field increasingly. It's been, that trend has been happening for quite a while over the past decade, but, you know, as as the technology gets more robust, as it gets, it comes down in price and, and the, the quality of the technology and the power of it, the performance and accuracy continues to increase, we see more and more use cases. And, and I think as data continues to grow, I think you're going to continue to see more and more applications uh, out in the field. You know, 5G has a lot of promise, and one of the challenges that's always been out there for biometric technology, especially during the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts, was how do you get that much data back and forth from disconnected environments where there's low bandwidth or no bandwidth? And that's always been a, a tough nut to crack. And I think increasingly we're seeing more and more solutions out there uh, as you're seeing, you know, wider areas with, with more connectivity and uh, the ability to process vastly larger amounts of data. Uh, because you know, as, as you know, these data packages, especially around whether it's identity or any other types of transactions, there's just more and more data out there that has to be processed from the front end all the way to the back end and then shared with partners. So I think that that's just one small example of, of how I see 5G coming to, uh, to the marketplace in the future. But also when you talk about IoT, I think you're going to see more and more biometrics embedded in different types of applications. Today we see it in consumer phones, cell phones, but I think increasingly you're going to see it embedded in retail applications. You're going to see it in restaurants, whether that's for uh, payment systems or being able to rent a car or interact with a kiosk at a transportation hub. All of those types of things are going to be enabled with, uh, with, with biometrics, which requires more data, which requires more processing power and, uh, and bigger pipes. So th there's going to be a lot of new use cases and a lot of new applications looking forward. Yeah, that's really interesting that you mentioned those other, you know, non-government verticals, because it really is sort of this larger idea. When we talk about biometrics and digital identity these days, it's such a big picture idea that uh, it's kind of interesting to sort of understand where the public and private sectors, as they both deal with this digital identity uh, challenge, how they influence each other. And what would you say the relationship is between, um, you know, those those restaurant, retail, consumer devices, uh, applications, and what's going on with the government sector? Well, there's a couple of really good examples of private-public or public-private partnerships uh, where, where, where they've been successful. And I think they're pretty important because just like a lot of other technologies out there, biometrics was, was already around before the, the 2000s. But, you know, during the wars of Afghanistan and Iraq, there was a lot of research and development, especially after 9-11 and as that decade progressed. And, you know, just like any other era of conflict, after that era ends, a lot of the technology that gets developed 
it gets applied to new use cases for your future applications. And I think as time has gone on, we've seen more and more practical applications of the technology where government has spent a lot of money on R&D up front and then the private sector benefits from that and they, they, they take up that mantle of investing in it to take it to the next level. So one of the good examples I can give you is, is the work that we've seen happen between the airlines, the airports, and the agencies within DHS, Department of Homeland Security. They've really done a fantastic job of working through the challenges of biometric entry and biometric exit and facilitating seamless travel, whether that's getting through security or getting to your gate or getting through the airport. All of those, all of those technologies that you see in that aviation space are born out of that public-private partnership, and they're pretty critical. Uh, you know, a lot of these private sector entities didn't have the R&D expertise or the budgets to develop and progress the technologies as far as the U.S. federal government did. And now that they got to a certain level and they started working with DHS to, to implement them in pilots and then transition them into full-fledged deployments and adoption, we're seeing some real gains. And I, and I think you're going to see more and more of that. That's extremely interesting. Um, you know, talking about that that specific airports and border control space, we talk a lot about facial recognition, obviously. And uh, we, that's also a very hot topic in the consumer and, and private sectors. But one of NEC's great advantages is its multimodal biometric portfolio with, uh, you know, obviously, like I said, face, but you also have fingerprint, iris, palm print recognition. You've been developing gate biometrics, if I'm not mistaken. Given the large scale of many government biometrics applications, do you find specific modalities and solutions are in higher demand in this sector than others? Sure. It goes without saying, everybody knows that, you know, this is the era of facial recognition, right? Mm -hmm. So face is having its moment where fingerprints been around for quite a while over the past couple of years and this year, and I think looking ahead over the next year or two, we're going to see facial recognition still have a lot of a lot of popularity, increase in demand, increase in popularity. So we absolutely are seeing that in the aviation space. I think internationally, we've, we have a couple of implementations, such as Singapore, where they use face facial recognition plus iris. So, uh, and, and obviously fingerprint in certain places around the world are still very popular in, in a lot of places, right? That's kind of the gold standard for biometrics. But I think increasingly you're going to see facial recognition take its place as, as a strong biometric because it, it has increased in performance and accuracy. It, it allows for users to interact with the technology at a standoff distance. They don't have to lay their fingers down or get close and pause and stare at anything. And so I think there's a level of comfort that consumers get with that type of technology and, and having the reassurance that it is increasingly accurate it works quickly it doesn't it has fewer errors than it used to have i think there's a level of not only adoption but mass acceptance that, that's happening and i think we're going to see more and more of that and and we've absolutely seen that in the customers we've we've had recently and delta airlines is the most notable customer uh customs and border protection is the other one both of those customers have implemented the technology facial recognition in in very similar ways and I think we're going to see more of that as, as other types of uh, aviation customers, whether it's the airport or the airlines, come online and start to, to use these technologies. That is actually a really great segue into the next topic of conversation, um, which is uh, I want to talk about biometric entry and exit, like you uh, mentioned before. 
NEC has been an integral player in the government's biometric entry exit program. What's the current status of this program and how many trials are you currently involved with? So that's a great question and, and, and it's, a, it's an exciting time to be involved in the travel aviation space when it comes to facial recognition. About three or four years ago, we started interacting with Customs and Border Protection as they were envisioning their pilot programs for biometric exit. And at the time, we had a prototype device that evolved into the Express. It's a piece of technology that we have with high-end cameras and software that collect the image and process the image for facial recognition. And at the time, we had a prototype, and that same technology was being trialed by Universal Studios. And uh, over time, that technology evolved, and we gathered some requirements, and we refined it, and we went to market with a piece of technology that was deployed to about 20 different airports. Customs and Border Protection wanted to deploy it and determine how well it would work uh, at biometric exit ports where international flights were departing the United States. That's the front end. On the back end, we also implemented our algorithm in the Traveler Verification Service, which is a CBP software stack that checks the visas of, of those travelers leaving the United States uh, to, to see if the visa is valid. And so we implemented those two parts of the technology at certain uh, certain ports of, of biometric exit across the country. And it was at the largest, most busiest airports in the United States. And, and they saw some fantastic results. They saw that uh, people were interacting with the technology seamlessly. They, they enjoyed it. It was frictionless and it was still secure and they could board airplanes more quickly. So there was a lot less interaction. You didn't have to take out your passport or your boarding pass in a lot of instances. And so we started to see that the customers enjoyed using the technology that way. And you know, a lot of those pilots still continue for biometric exit, but increasingly the airlines and the airports are starting to pick up and implement the technology on their own. So over time, we see those exit pilots will probably start to transition to more uh, private sector implementations where they buy their own equipment and they hook in the front end devices with the back end CBP system to do the vetting. So that's biometric exit. On the biometric entry side, it's it's been a little bit of a different story. There was already a lot of technology already in the field for automatic passport control and uh, for for frequent travelers. So where where you would use fingerprints if you opted into these certain programs. And now there is an effort underway to determine whether facial recognition can uh, either complement or replace some of that technology. And so we're involved in a couple of uh, trials there as well, both pedestrian along the border and also on the airport side. So they're checking whether facial recognition can be used to automate more of that entry process with a larger uh, segment of the population. So whether it's biometric exit or biometric entry, it's a really exciting time to be involved in facial recognition and border control because the use cases just keep uh, keep multiplying and the technology just keeps getting better. And so it, it's a really exciting time looking forward. Yeah, well, and it's such a fascinating space for biometric security in general because, you know, when we talk about border control, the conversation is framed around national security quite often uh, when we talk about it like in the media. But a few biometrics applications are as high throughput as those in airports. And like you said, you you know, you're partnered with the 
CBP and Delta, those are two very different entities collaborating on this thing, on this, uh, on this project. I guess my question is, how important is it to consider the user experience in all of these airport deployments? It's usually important. You're right. I mean, all of this started off as as security, border control, counterterrorism years and years ago. But while the security has stayed consistent or gotten better over time, the customer experience piece has gotten much more important. As we've seen digital transformation take place, customer experience has gotten even more important for these private sector customers and for the government. Nobody enjoys lines, right, queues, when everybody stands in line, especially once you've gotten off of a 14-hour flight, you're jet lagged, you're tired, you might have some children with you. I mean, I've got a two-year-old myself, so I know how difficult it is to come off of a flight. And the last thing you want to do is wait in line for a, for a while, 45 minutes or an hour, only to be confronted with a process where you have to present documentation potentially pre present your fingerprints and you know be scrutinized by presenting items that you've already presented before to establish your identity. Whereas if you implement facial recognition to augment and, and complement or even supplement part of that process, it makes it so much more enjoyable and it makes it easier to interact with everybody along the way, whether it's the Customs and Border Patrol agent or it's the airline or the airport employee that's trying to facilitate the passenger through the space. Having these technologies just increases the throughput and, and it, it generally makes people a lot more comfortable and a lot happier. And a lot of surveys recently have shown that a lot of international travelers and, and increasingly more domestic travelers, they are comfortable with the technology as long as it decreases the amount of time they have to wait in those lines. The goal is to sort of get back to making travel a lot more fun again. I was going to ask uh, how you find the balance between security and convenience in this area, but I feel like you answered that, which is just ensuring that it's uh, as little friction as possible, which would be something that contactless biometrics can, can offer. <laughs> well, it, one, one thing I would add is, you know, one thing at NEC we're really proud of is the fact that we've been number one in the NIST tests for accuracy and performance for 10 years straight. And being a top performing algorithm in the world helps to ensure that strong level of security, especially when you're doing use cases where there, 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 there has the potential to be a lot of data. You want to be matching a face that's in front of you against a larger set of data. And it's important to have a strong, robust algorithm that is a high-performing algorithm that's highly accurate. And so that's one piece on the security side, but also working closely with the customer, whether it's the government or if it's a commercial entity, one of the things that, that's really important is to make sure that we get the requirements right and iterate through that process to make sure that it does fit the bill and, and it makes the customer experience truly better. Not just to sort of take something out of the box and put it into an airport and hope that it does the best. We actually want to iterate through it and, and tweak it and change it as needed. And that's the only true way that you get to that, that better customer experience. Yeah, it's like a very strong evolutionary process, I suppose. Absolutely. So, you know, going back to the larger idea of biometric entry exit, for years, industry organizations were calling the entire thing, biometric entry exit, an unfulfilled mandate. What right. took so long to finally start seeing the progress that we've seen in the past three years? You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting story, and, it, and you're right, it's a long time coming. After 9-11, 
there was clearly a need to implement safeguards at the border for vetting individuals coming and leaving the country, and everybody knew it. After the 9-11 Commission published their report, there were a number of findings in that report that called for more stringent vetting of identities for travelers and visa applicants coming in to our country and leaving the country. The U.S. Visit Program, which effectively was the first wave of biometric entry, was a funded mandate, and that was largely deployed. But as I mentioned earlier, it was fingerprint-based. And the Department of State and other large agencies in the U.S. government started implementing vetting procedures to, to look for terrorists and keep bad actors out of our country. And that included using biometrics to screen for visa applicants and so forth. And then, as I said, when they got to the country, those same biometrics would use to verify the identity of the individual coming into the country. But one of the big pieces that was left out was the biometric exit portion. There wasn't enough funding allocated after 9-11 for biometric exit because the thinking was, well, for one, they're going to be leaving the country, so that's not as risky as them coming into the country, for one. The next thing was there was a, a debate about who is responsible for paying for that. Is that a private sector requirement or is that a public sector requirement? And that debate raged for quite a number of years, and there were some cost analysis done, and I think some, most of them were done by the U.S. federal government. And the, at the time, this is in the late 2000s, the figures were quite high. They were in the billions of dollars to implement biometric entry and exit across the United States at all ports of entry and exit. And so it's continued to be a debate and it continued to be an unfunded mandate for a number of years. And I think there were a lot of contributing factors. For starters, uh, you know, I think the private sector was unwilling to pay for what they considered to be a security requirement of the government. Mm -hmm. They may have felt that uh, it was more of a government function. And also, I think the private sector, rightly so, at the time, it was too expensive. So the technology was not quite as accurate as it is today, specifically around facial recognition. Fingerprints have always been pretty accurate for the past, you know, 20, 30 years. But facial recognition in particular wasn't quite there yet 10 years ago. And it was still pretty expensive, pretty pricey. And a lot of the technology wasn't uh, as robust as it is today. But more and more increasingly over the past five to seven years, we saw all of those variables begin to change. We saw that facial recognition got more accurate, got faster. There was more competition in the marketplace, which always is good for consumers because prices start to go down as competition enters the, the marketplace. And so all those factors were happening. In parallel, we saw computing power start to come down in price. Memory was cheaper cloud computing was cheaper. So processing at the edge became something that uh, was easier to do. And also another thing I, I failed to mention, the airports and the airlines were also concerned about real estate. It's really expensive to change and retrofit the physical limitations of an airport to accommodate what was at the time larger equipment. Well, as that equipment started to shrink, it became more, fe more feasible to install smaller imagery equipment into these airports. A lot of these airports are 10, 20, 30 years old. So all of those factors started to come together. And over the past, I'd say two to three years, maybe four years, it's really accelerated. And then um, a couple of years ago with uh, this new administration, there was an executive order issued to finish biometric exit. And that was not a standalone order uh, by itself because Customs and Border Protection was already moving in this direction. So it wasn't, that wasn't the only catalyst, but it certainly didn't hurt.
just to recap, all of those variables together took quite a while, over 10 years, to, to overcome that unfunded mandate after 9-11. But we do see uh, a lot of the industry and the government starting to turn a corner. Yeah, well, you know, when you lay it out like that, it does make a lot of sense. And especially when you look at the industry as a whole, you see that acceleration up to where we are now. It really paints a, a very understandable picture, I, I would say. Are there any current obstacles that still need to be addressed before fully implementing biometric entry and exit? Or are we pretty much in the home stretch here? No, we've still got some challenges ahead of us. I think for starters, we still see new technology that is maturing, and in all of us, including NEC, we've got new technology coming out. So I think some players are still standing on the sidelines waiting for that next great thing. I think some of them still consider the price points to be tough for them, but I think increasingly that's no longer an issue. I think the price points have changed enough where people are more accepting customers. But also, I think that a lot of discussion recently around privacy and how the technology is used and by whom and what protections are given to the, the consumers at the edge and what happens to their data, I think it's very front of mind for a lot of companies that want to invest in this technology for their customer experience offerings. And so I think we've the, the industry still got some questions to, to, to answer. I think we're doing a great job of trying to get out there and set the record straight. But we also have several groups out there that, that have a different opinion. And so I think that I think there's some work to do before we get into the home stretch. This episode of the ID Talk podcast is part of Government Biometrics Month, which is sponsored by NEC Corporation of America's Advanced Recognition Systems Division. NEC is using cutting-edge technology to revolutionize travel and security. Its facial recognition systems seamlessly authenticate passengers, providing a single unified biometric key that provides a secure, frictionless, and personalized end-to-end experience at the airport. Just a single scan improves airport security and enhances customer experience, cutting down wait times and facilitating safer, more streamlined travel. Learn more about how NEC Corporation of America is changing air travel with biometrics by visiting necam.com slash advanced recognition systems slash aviation. And now back to the show. Last time you and I spoke at FedID in 2018, face ID and consumer face biometrics seemed to really energize the enthusiasm for facial recognition. And we've talked a lot about that already in terms of how that's made people more comfortable with this technology, which is already pretty intuitive. But a few high profile controversies and some anti-facial recognition rhetoric in the current democratic debates seem to be really reigniting the facial recognition skepticism that we've kind of become used to back when the industry was a little bit more nascent and the only language people had to talk about it was through the lens of say minority report or other you know espionage thrillers or science fiction dystopias has this public discourse changed the government landscape for you as a provider of face biometric solutions for government? It certainly has has made things more challenging, right? And and it's been it's been an interesting dialogue. I think some of it's been a very healthy dialogue, but other other parts of it have, have not been so healthy. So there are uh, a number of groups out there that have come forth privacy groups and and academic organizations that have put out various uh, reports, and it's not always completely accurate. A lot of it has to do, it's founded in truth. There is some truth to some of their research, but they tend to politicize it a little bit 
and uh, they do focus on the negative aspects of where the technology might go. It's a lot of negative hyperbole about where things might end up, not where they actually are. And unfortunately, what's happened is we've seen a lot of press and media outlets pick up on these uh, reports and zero in on a couple of lines from that report and run with those as headlines. And unfortunately, that has led to misinformation both among lawmakers and policymakers. And so there's been a real concerted effort among the industry players to go up to Capitol Hill and talk to those policymakers and try to inform them about the benefits of the technology and the truth behind how it really works. And so the privacy discussion has certainly has certainly take a turn, taken a turn, and um, I think that it will still be a little bit of a challenge looking forward. Uh, and it is unfortunate, but you know there's some real healthy, positive benefits to technology, and uh, we we try to we try to stress those every time we get a chance. And you're right, a lot of these negative thoughts come from Hollywood and so forth, but people forget a lot of the positive things that we've been talking about, which is the customer experience, the better travel experiences, but also it's things in the law enforcement realm like family reunification or victim identification or exonerating individuals who are falsely accused of crimes. You know, facial recognition can be used for those use cases just as well. And even with kidnapping and so forth. So there's a lot of really good uh, use cases and good news stories out there. But unfortunately, the one or two or three uh, negative stories that have made their way into the press tend to sell more news, more newspapers. And so that's been something that everybody as an industry has had to really grapple with. What are the biggest misconceptions, in your opinion, about government facial recognition? The biggest misconception is that the technology is biased. And this is born out of some of the negative stories and the negative reporting that's happened. There is no doubt that the technology is not perfect. We all know that. And for certain segments of the population, the algorithms, especially if you've got a poor algorithm, a cheaper one, they're not going to perform as well with certain segments of the population. And when I say that, we know that there's anomalies with certain ethnicities, and we know that there are challenges with people who are very young or people who are very old. And so we know the algorithms are not perfect, but that's why organizations like NEC, and other competitors that I know are in our space, we spend millions and millions of dollars a year to perfect those algorithms and to make them better. And, you know, even even the words facial recognition have meaning, right? Facial recognition itself does not mean positive ID. What it does mean is that uh, it, it's a high probability that that is the same person. And when you're dealing with certain scenarios, specifically when I'm talking about law enforcement, you have to understand how the technology is used. And I think that there's a misconception around facial recognition being used in law enforcement that when there's a match, that means that person immediately goes to jail, which is not the truth at all. There's always a human in the loop in that use case, and the risks are, are higher and the stakes are higher. So if there's a match on an individual in a law enforcement environment for a case, for example, it is always an investigatory lead. And that's all it is. It's not permissible in court. It's not something that can be used against that individual. And so there's a misconception that a facial recognition match will lead to a very negative out outcome. And so uh, having having to battle those those misconceptions out there is something we spend a lot of time doing. When, when people talk about those biases, they talk about the training sets for these algorithms. And so I guess my question is, how much of that misconception do you think is sort of born from a conflation 
between, say, a Silicon Valley startup that is doing smartphone recognition versus a large, you know, established government company like NEC. Government, no, not government it, company, but yeah, it's it, it's a it's a good point because you know there is a difference between different categories of algorithms, right? You know what we often say is there's forensic grade algorithms that are trained on very large data sets and they're tested by NIST, and so there's a lot of data that shows and demonstrates how these algorithms perform in lots of different scenarios, whether it's mug shots or faces in the wild from video cameras or against data sets of lots of different ethnicities. And that's, that, that's a category of algorithms that you'll see the top 20 performing algorithms in the world. They're typically tested under those different types of scenarios. Whereas on the other hand, to your point, where the risk is a lot lower, such as logging into your phone, those algorithms are not as robustly tested as the other ones, and rightly so, right? The risk factors are different. And so I think a lot of those things are, are conflated and they get, they get confused. Another misconception is this, this, this idea that the, the training data sets are homogenous and that they only have white males, for example, inside of them. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Companies like ours and, and some of our, our competitors, they are multinational companies that operate on every continent in the world. And so, you know, I can say for, for NEC, we operate in over 70 countries, and we've got over 700 biometric implementations around the world. And so uh, it behooves us to work as hard as we can to get these algorithms to work as well as they possibly can with every ethnic background in the world. And that's what our R&D researchers do. They spend a lot of time, these algorithmic researchers spend a lot of time working with the data, working with the models and the math to make sure it's as accurate as possible. And I, I recommend that people look no further than NIST tests because uh, a lot of these algorithms that are these strong performers are all in the top 10. And those are the ones that are found in all of the very large scale U.S. government agency databases. I think that there might be another conflation happening, too. Actually, I know there is because <laughs> I work in this industry. But um, I think a, perhaps there's another misconception happening that facial recognition, like you said, is face authentication. And it's not even so much uh, one is not as robustly tested as the other. It's that they're being tested for one-to-one -one matching versus one-to-many matching. And those right. are completely different technologies. And so maybe we just have to be a little bit more clear <laughs> as an industry in terms of defining those terms. Do you think that that might have something to do with it? Be like, okay, just it's all face biometrics. Yeah but there's matching. You're totally right. Yeah, no, you're, you're totally right. When we, when we go to talk to people in Capitol Hill or, or policymakers, we, all, we always stress the use cases. You're 100% correct, right? There's one-to-one -one verification and there's one-to-many identification. And it's important to, to be careful how we use our language, right? Because uh, to your point, right, one-to-one -one is saying we have that image, we know that image, and we're going to make sure that whoever is introducing that image is the same image. That's very different for taking an image that you find somewhere, whether it's a mugshot or out in the wild, and you say, I'm going to compare this to 12 million photos and find out if it's in the database. That is a much harder problem to solve than the previous one. Absolutely. You know, further to that, beyond language and, you know, going to Capitol Hill, what steps can vendors and governments take to ensure face biometrics continue to be deployed in a privacy forward manner? 
You know, I think the first thing is, and I've already said it and you mentioned it, right, it's educating the the folks on Capitol Hill, educating the staffers, your congressmen, your senators, all those people who sit on the committees within Congress that are looking at this legislation and the policies and the regulations, it's important that they understand all these nuances around the technology. Look, for us in the industry, we've been doing this a long time. It sort of comes second nature. But like anything else, when it's new, for a lot of people, they've not seen it before. And it does sort of seem like magic. They don't understand exactly how it works. And and they're cautious, rightly so. And this is not new. Every time there's a new piece of technology that comes on the scene as fast and furious as facial recognition has, there's always a little bit of trepidation. And so then there's a learning curve. But over time, people begin to accept it. They understand how it works. They understand the limitations. And and, and hopefully, there's balanced legislation that is produced. And and we are, I know, we we are big supporters of balanced legislation that protects the privacy of consumers and and also public citizens, but also allows the technology to be implemented in a safe and secure manner and allows companies to continue to innovate. The last thing we want is a poor piece of legislation that strangles commercial activity on this front. Because look, computer vision and artificial intelligence, which is fueling facial recognition, is only going to get stronger as we look forward. And there's a lot of applications we we don't even know about yet. And so uh, educating folks on Capitol Hill is a big one. Also working with industry trade groups, nonprofits, the privacy organizations, the privacy groups, those out there who are out there advocating for the privacy rights of of consumers and citizens. We want to talk to them. We want to bring them to the table and, and find positive solutions to, to move this forward. And, and that's, that's what I would recommend that, that folks in the industry do. I know that's what NEC does, and we do it on a global scale. Uh, the last thing I would mention is, you know, we also have a lot of activities internal to our company to ensure that we're being productive corporate citizens as well. We have a digital trust division that focuses on ethics of artificial intelligence, and that really informs our internal policies whether that's you know engineering principles, privacy by design, ways that we develop our technology and implement it in a safe and responsible manner. We have devoted a lot of resources and we've got outside consultants and, and people that, that consult with us to, to make sure that we, we've got a good approach. And, and those are all responsible things to do. And I think a lot of other companies out there are, are taking the same path. Threats on the rise and criminals growing more sophisticated by the day, citizens trust law enforcement agencies to stay one step ahead. NEC knows the key to keeping communities safe is accuracy, reliability, and speed. For more than 45 years, NEC's award-winning identity matching solutions have helped federal, state, and local agencies globally solve crime and save lives. Their solutions provide the technology-based partnerships required for accurate real-time and post-event investigations, providing new ways to predict threats, process crime scenes, capture field data, and more. Find out how NEC's biometric capabilities can work for you and become a trusted partner by reaching out at necam.com slash advanced recognition systems slash law enforcement. And now back to the podcast. So... Even though the public discourse right now is fixated on face biometrics, the U.S. government is currently in the process of updating its multimodal databases like IDENT and HEART. HEART specifically is incrementally adding new modalities. Face and iris biometrics are set to go live next year. 
and palm and DNA matching are going to follow when it's fully operational. How do you expect these multimodal databases to affect border control and law enforcement? So I think as we've been alluding to with facial recognition in particular and with IRIS, I think you're going to see more and more border applications and homeland security, homeland defense applications leverage these types of services and transactions that will come out of HART. HART is an ambitious program. I already referenced U.S. Visit. You know, U.S. Visit actually came after the IDENT system was established in the 1990s. Not a lot of people know that. So IDENT itself, the precursor to HART, has been providing biometric services to various component agencies under DHS for a number of years. And a lot of those have gone very well, checking the identity of individuals who may or may not have the proper visa or travel documents or checking on their citizen status and so forth. A lot of those services that the U.S. federal government provides to those looking to immigrate or visit the United States are critical. But also, you kind of referenced earlier disaster recovery with FEMA, security and vetting, TSA for domestic travelers, all of those areas, there's opportunity for using biometrics, whether it's facial recognition or an iris check. And again, those are less invasive. They, they require less equipment, smaller footprints of equipment than fingerprints. Uh, and they can still provide a high level of accuracy, a very high level of accuracy when you're trying to check someone's identity. Also, you mentioned uh, palm print and DNA. In the future, I think those are potentially game changers. Palm prints have been strong biometrics that have been used to solve crimes uh, across the United States with the Department of Justice and the FBI for decades. I think as we, as Department of Homeland Security gets more robust in how they provide biometric services, they'll be able to solve uh, other types of crimes that fall under their jurisdiction. And, uh, and I, you know, being able to process palms uh, will give them just a stronger capability. And uh, agencies like CBP or the Border Patrol or ICE, a lot of those, those organizations can, can, can make determinations from some of those matches. And then the other one, too, which has gotten a little bit of controversy, but rapid DNA is, is still a very robust technology. And it has a very important use case. A lot of times what happens at the border is, these coyotes and people smugglers try to bring children in and pass them off as their own. And it's heartbreaking. They, they break a, apart families and, uh, and it's, it's very difficult. And so what the folks at the border are trying to do at DHS is use that technology to identify if there's a familial relationship. And that's a really important use case. So any one of these modalities are going to really start to enhance the way the Department of Homeland Security provides these services and what services they provide to U.S. citizens and to foreign nationals. So I, I think the future is pretty bright for the heart system. Um, it, is, it is quite a, quite an ambitious program. We're, we're excited to support that program and we're excited to be a part of it and we're looking forward to, to where it goes. Taking a look into the future, how do you expect government biometrics to evolve in the next five years? Well, we've already touched a little bit on it. You know, I, I think the, the, the types of biometric modalities that are deployed in the field, I think we're going to see more and more facial recognition. I believe we're going to see more iris. And I also believe we're going to see more and more rapid DNA being used at various levels of the, of the state, local, and, and federal government. And I think that's exciting. And, and as we continue to see these trends in technology where cloud technology is, is more prevalent, more biometric matching and biometric services are provided at the edge. We're going to see more of these services pushed down 
as opposed to having them all on the back end with only the monolithic databases where you'd have to go to some central location or headquarters to obtain those services, I think we're going to see more and more of, the, of a proliferation of those biometrics to the edge where people can take advantage of them. And and it's exciting. I, you know, I think in the, in the 2000s, we saw the military take advantage of it on the battlefield. And over the past decade, I think we've seen more and more of domestic use cases that are that are non-military, whether it's law enforcement or or other types of use cases. It's just a positive development with the technology. And, and I think that that's where this stuff is headed. And what's next specifically for NEC as we approach the end of the year? Well, look, we, we've had a really great year. We're really excited about the FRBT one-to-many results that recently came out. The round three results were released on September 11th, which I think is an appropriate day to release them. And we're really excited to come out number one in, in many categories in that report. And that, that's testing about 200 different algorithms. So we couldn't be prouder of that. And for us, looking forward, we've got a number of, of customers coming online. We've got more airports where we are deploying the technology to large terminals for Delta. We've got customs and border protection activities going on where we're supporting uh, biometric entry and exit. We're also, we just recently started with a new customer, Star Biometrics Hub, which Lufthansa is a part of that group. So we're really excited about that. And there's more to come. So we see a really bright future and, and it's exciting to be a part of it. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on all of that, especially the NIST results. And uh, yeah, you. it seems like an excellent way to, to round out the decade. Benji, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. How can listeners get in contact with you and learn more about NEC? Well, the easiest way is obviously to visit us at our website, which is www.necam.com forward slash ARS. And so that's probably the easiest way, but you're also welcome to contact me. And my email is benji.hutchinson at necam.com. Please feel free to contact me. Fantastic. Well, Benji, thanks again. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Looking forward to next time. Thank you so much. Talk soon. Thank you. And so concludes this latest episode of the ID Talk podcast. Thanks again to Benji Hutchinson and NEC. To learn more about NEC Corporation of America's government solutions, head to necam.com ARS. For more insight into the world of government biometrics, visit findbiometrics.com and read our latest featured articles for Government Biometrics Month. Special thanks to Legumrad for our podcast theme music. I've been your host, Peter Counter. Thank you for joining me on the IT Talk podcast. <laughs>